The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Of course, you all know by now that the guests on this series are very famous and very influential. So for that reason, I like to utilize our first segment as a kind of a how did you get here exploration? How did you become who you are today? So that's where we're going to be going first. Uh, Tony, Dr. Tony Bruce, as you are a New Zealander and definitely from the greatest distance away, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, tell us about yourself as a young girl. Where did you grow up? Were you personally into sports? Did you get messages that you can remember about what girls were to do or not to do? Thanks, Carol. And hi, everybody. I grew up on a very hilly sheep farm in New Zealand with a steep gravel driveway that was about three quarters of a mile long that my sister and I walked every day back and forth to catch the bus to school. So because we lived a long way from our nearest neighbours, I only had my little sister, my parents, and our cats to play with. And also as the eldest, I was responsible for doing things like feeding the chickens and sometimes feeding the farm dogs. So, um, so, the, so there really was no sport because we didn't have neighbor, neighborhood kids to play with. Um, we didn't really have any organized sport competitions at school. So my only introduction to physical activity was things like learning to ride, um, because that was the only way we could get around most of our farm. And um, I didn't even learn to ride a bicycle until I was an adult. <laughs> so I had a very different upbringing, I think, from a lot of different people. So sport as a kid didn't really feature at all in my life. And um, in terms of messages, I was thinking about this. I don't really remember any messages really about what girls should or shouldn't do as a child. Uh, my sister and I were expected to help out on the farm. Um, I worked in a shearing shed as a Rousey, which is the person that um, sweeps up the wool and keeps the, the board clean for the shearers. So, um, and we didn't have any brothers or close male cousins to compare ourselves to. So, I don't really remember any kind of gender messages as I was when I was a kid. All right, very good, very good. Um, Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Cookie, how about taking us down these same roads? Um, what was girlhood like for you, and what kind of activities were you immersed in growing up? Yeah, great. Um, thank you, Carol, for having me on the show. Hello, everyone out there. Uh, gosh, I, I had a, quite a different experience um, growing up than, than um, Dr. Bruce did. Uh, I grew up in the near west suburbs of Chicago, uh, and so it was um, uh, sports were 
fairly readily available. I grew up in a, in a community in a block where um, there were probably about five or six kids that were roughly my same age, and um, we could easily get together and, and head to the park, which was a couple blocks away, um, and, and walk down there or ride our bikes and, uh, you know, play games. And my parents um, encouraged me to get involved um, in a lot of different activities and try out a lot of different things. Uh, sports being one of them. So I played uh, Little League softball growing up and some, some other uh, activities. And I think in terms of messages about um, what girls were to do and, and, and not to do, uh, you know, I, I, I came of age just shortly after the passage of Title IX. And so with respect to sport, not that there was um, a, a, a complete embracement or celebration of girls playing sport. Um, at the same time, um, as a young girl in, in middle school and in junior high, uh, I, I, there were sport opportunities available, and I didn't receive any particular messages that girls weren't supposed to be playing sport. Um, it wasn't until high school when I think those messages uh, became more more salient for me, and so I don't know how far down the road we want to go with that. I can talk about that now or or later, but I think there was a kind of uh, cultural moment where um, that I grew up in, where you know it was okay to be a tomboy, it was okay to be a girl who you know um, played uh, sports with the boys, played games with the boys. Um, of course, I think that that shifted once I hit adolescence and high school. All right, we are definitely going to get to that um, crucial turning point, but I wanted to ask one more question uh, focused more on the early days. Um, Both of you have varied aspects to your research program, but a a lot of attention goes to the media. And when I was looking at your uh, resumes and Vita, it it seemed to point to me that maybe you were uh, an avid reader or maybe an avid movie fan or something um, in your uh, girlhood. So is that true for either of you or it, were there any fictional heroes, sheroes that you um, really embraced? Uh, Cheryl, why don't you keep going for a second here on that one? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up uh, in sort of came of age in terms of popular culture. Gosh, that would have been like late 70s, early 80s when I was, um, you know, probably like I don't know, and I can't do the math, but 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that sort of age range. And I think um, the, probably the biggest influence in terms of popular culture, not that I did a whole lot of reading growing up as a kid, I hate to admit, um, I was not an avid reader. And in fact, I somewhat prided myself on, on not reading books. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, you, you had to make up for that later. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly did in, in graduate school, but um, I was definitely into um, watching movies on cable. Cable was a big thing um, when, when I was growing up, just having all those uh, movies available to watch on TV. And, and um, uh, of course, Star Wars uh, came out around that same time period, and I was very much into um, playing with and collecting Star Wars figures. And so, of course, I loved Princess Leia. So I think if there was anybody that was a kind of a fictional role model for me um, as a young girl. And it didn't seem like there was a whole lot um, at that time. Maybe Princess Leia, Wonder Woman, and a handful of others. But uh, definitely Princess Leia, I think, was, was my uh, fictional shero. Very good. Tony, how about you? Well, I think, again, Cheryl and I have had quite different, um, quite different upbringings because I've always been an avid reader. 
I'm a complete omnivore on the book front, so I, I will actually read just about anything. And I think that's probably because I grew up in the country, so books were our main form of entertainment or escape. Uh, we didn't get a television until I was quite old, and because we lived a long way from, from any major cities, I didn't really go to movies either. So, Cheryl, I had a very different kind of immersion into the world of imagination. Um, so I think I was trying to think about this. I think probably the older sisters and little women were my first kind of female role models, especially Joe, who was the tomboy. Um, and I read Lord of the Rings when I was 13, and I fell madly in love with Aragorn. And uh, I still, uh, I'm still a huge Lord of the Rings fan, so I've been to all the movies. And um, I like those kind of stories of seeking and journeying and overcoming hardship. So I think that I'd still probably choose a book over a movie if I had to make a choice. Well, I don't know. We'll have to talk later about whether loving Lord of the Rings is obligatory for a New Zealander. I'm not sure about that. But anyway. <laughs> I think uh, it is. I think it is, yeah. Uh, let's let's go to that adolescent turning point kind of thing that Cheryl was talking about. Um when you got to high school, or maybe just a little bit beyond, um, how important were sports to you at that time? Uh, were you competing? Was it just for fun or more like uh, watching as a fan? I, I don't know. Where was it uh, when you got to high school and maybe early college age? Cheryl, you mentioned the turning point thing, so why don't you pick that up? Yeah, so I think um, for me growing up, uh, as I mentioned, I, I was involved in a lot of different activities, um, organized sports, uh, swimming, volleyball, softball, um, gymnastics. And I tried out my freshman year for the gymnastics team at my high school. And in the United States, um, sports are, you know, part of uh, a high schooler's experience and readily available um, particularly in, in a school like mine that was fairly large. I think there were 2,000 students total in my high school. Um, and then we had a, um, uh, a sister school that was another, probably about another 1,500, 2,000 students as well that we would co- um, uh, share collective uh, athletic resources with. And so um, the opportunities were there, and, you know, we, we were fairly competitive but not so competitive that, you, you couldn't make a team if you didn't have some background in sport. And so I tried out for the gymnastics team. Um, I had only um, uh, taken gymnastics lessons for a couple of years as a young girl, so I was by no means uh, trained or, or particularly skilled. But I made the team um, and, and was um, good enough to participate in meets and things like that, but not really – skilled enough to be anything spectacular. Uh, And I I knew that as, as a, as a young girl, I knew that I, that wasn't um, going to be a source of a lot of um, self-esteem or competence. Um, But I did enjoy the uh, social aspects of it. I enjoyed the physical aspects of it. So I stuck with it for a year. um, And then as you know, I kind of became more immersed into the culture of my high school. Um, It became apparent sort of the, the social hierarchy, and um, as someone who's extroverted and who likes to be around people, and, and um, you know, at the time it was important to me as a young girl to fit in um, and to be accepted within my peer group. I didn't really know anyone in my high school, um, and so I was kind of coming in new, and um, 
the messages were clear that, you know, girls who played sports were not um, socially valued, um, were sort of at the lower end of the social hierarchy. Uh, and it was the girls that were cheer- who were the cheerleaders. It was the girls who were on the pom-pom squad, or that's what we called it. Um, I don't know if this translates, but uh, essentially the, the girls who perform dance routines, choreographed dance routines at ha- halftime events for the boys' sports. Um, those were the girls that were popular and had friends and were at the kind of peak of the social hierarchy. And so um, I'm not quite sure if there was any particular incident that happened, uh, but I decided to try out for the pom-pom squad my sophomore year. I dropped out of gymnastics um, and organized sport entirely um, and spent the rest of my high school career um, choreographing dance routines and performing for boys sports. And I remember uh, there was one opportunity that we had that was presented to us by our faculty advisor to start performing at the girls' basketball game. So we would perform at the boys' basketball games and the boys' football games. Uh, And I'm not quite sure how this opportunity came about, but this was presented to the squad and we were to discuss and vote on it. And of course we were, I shouldn't say of course, but um, maybe those of you that are familiar with American high school culture in the, you know, uh, late 1980s may not find this all that surprising, uh, but the squad um, and and myself in particular just thought that that was so weird um, and bizarre. Why would we cheer for the girls? And of course we wouldn't want to do that. And no one cares about girls sports and we want to be at the boys uh, events. And so um, that's, that's kind of what sports were like for me um, in, in high school. Well, it really is uh, just a wonderful, in the sense of dramatic example of what happens to so many girls. Uh, even now, the, there's quite a dropout rate at adolescence. Um, that's what the Sports Foundation research shows. So um, th- your, t- your story is just a really dramatic description of, of what was very common, maybe the 80s and, and maybe still uh, somewhat today. Um, Tony, how about what was the picture like across the pond um, as, as you went into adolescence and maybe just early college, what was the role of sports in your life? Well, again, I think it's fascinating that my experience is radically different from Cheryl's because um, at 13, like my mother and my grandmother before me and my sister after me, I was sent away to boarding school. And it was an all-girls boarding school. And it was at that point that I totally took to sport like a duck to water. I loved it. I played anything and everything because I just hadn't had that opportunity before. And I think um, there's there's quite a lot of sporting talent on both sides of my family. So I think um, I must have acquired some decent genes for playing sport. Uh, so at my school, girls were the best at everything, the best at science, the best at sport, the best at music. So I never had to go through that kind of trying to decide about whether it was acceptable or not acceptable for me to play, which I feel really blessed about now, that I never really had to question that that kind of thing when I was growing up. Um, My main sports I played were basketball and netball, which is netball's the dominant female sport in New Zealand. There is hardly a New Zealand woman who hasn't grown up playing it. It's kind of like basketball, but just based on passing, no contact, and players are limited to different zones 
And so I played really competitively. I loved, I loved competition. And um, by the time my last couple of years at high school, I was in the top teams in both sports until the school made us choose between them because there were five of us that were in the basketball team and the netball team. And we all chose basketball. So in that Oops. sense, we had, I, I'd moved to, the, to Auckland, which is our biggest city, so we had a lot of um, inter-school competition. We played regularly every weekend um, in both sports against other schools. And I, I think New Zealand's very different from the U.S. because I know in a lot of U.S. high schools there's, there's sort of two, two teams, the main team and the junior team. Whereas in New Zealand, anybody who wanted to play can play. So I think we had something like nine netball teams. So um, everybody d- was a netball, you know, everyone was a netballer, but it just was which team you played in. On. God. Very good. I'm have, sorry, I have yep. to break in, Tony. We're, it's time for a, a very short break. We're going to be back and finish up um, with uh, this, our description of uh, the youth's uh, period for our guests and then go into some of their research area. But uh, come back in just a few minutes for the long road up. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone, to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Uh, my guest today, Cheryl Cookie and uh, Tony Bruce, uh, caught us up a little bit on the early years uh, in their lives and their relationship with sport. Um, Tony was just finishing up when we took our break. Uh, did you want to say one one last thing, Tony, or was that I, – I, it sounded like you were on the top team uh, whenever you tried out for those teams. I think um, – yes, it took me a while to get into those teams because you develop over time. But, yes, once I was at the top, I played – I've sort of always played really elite level sport until I was, you know, in my 40s and and couldn't actually do that anymore. But one of the questions you asked, Cheryl, was um, what was your turning point? And I realized that my turning point didn't come until I was in my early 20s. That was the first time I sort of got slapped in the face with the idea that women 
shouldn't play sport. I was traveling around Europe on a on a bus tour with a whole lot of young people from different countries, and at every stop, a bunch of us would jump off the bus and immediately try to play some kind of sport, soccer or throw a rugby league ball around or something like that. And the first time we did this, I, I looked around and suddenly realized that the only girls that were playing were, were girls from New Zealand. And that's when I started to think that maybe New Zealand girls are raised differently from girls in other countries. Because we just took it. Um, none of us were really good at, at, at soccer, which was what we were playing. But we all just thought, oh, yeah, of course. You know, we get out and we play. So I realized that I didn't really get a lot of those messages until... Um, I started running into people from other countries when I was traveling, and that was when it sort of started to come home to me that, that my, my upbringing might have been different than people in other countries. Mm-hmm. Well, with both of you now, uh, I want to work towards um, the part of your life to which you've dedicated so much, your research areas. So, um, Cheryl, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with you and and think about when and how you decided you were going to go to graduate school, a master's degree, even PhD. Who were the people or events that really motivated and inspired you towards your career? Yeah, I, I kind of fell into graduate school um, by default in a way. Uh, and, and the trajectory of how I got there is very roundabout and convoluted, but I started out um, as one of the first people in my family um, to go to a four-year um, institution. And uh, my, a couple of cousins had gone, but, but no one in, in my immediate family had completed a four-year college degree. Uh, and I think I went to college just because it was what my friends were doing. Um, they were applying to college and they were going to college, so it just seemed like the thing to do. And I didn't quite have a sense of what it was that I wanted to do, although I thought being a cardio um, thoracic surgeon would be really cool for some reason. Maybe it was, you know, watching all those medical shows on American television. <laughs> uh, and so um, I went to the University of Illinois in, in Champaign-Urbana, and I think that's something that maybe Tony and I do have in common, uh, and was uh, pre-med uh, for my first two years and realized I did horribly at, at, at chemistry and biology. I think I was actually on academic probation uh, for a semester uh, and I had transferred to um, kinesiology because I thought, well, I, you know, I, I pulled myself up. I, got, I had gotten some better grades in some classes, and uh, so I had some prereqs and thought, well, kinesiology might be a really good way to, to use those prereqs, um, and, and uh, maybe I would go into physical therapy because my... One of my cousin's wives was a physical therapist, and my mom just thought that would be a good, a good job for me because I'd make a lot of money, and I could also have kids and be a mom because that's what my cousin was doing. Um, you, know, the, the, you can have it all kind of career. <laughs> and uh, so I um, did some volunteer work as a physical therapist, uh, which was required um, for master's degree programs in, in the United States, and uh, found it to be incredibly boring and or depressing, depending upon whether it was an outpatient setting or a clinical setting. And so realized that despite, um, you know, pulling myself up and getting on the dean's list and making sort of an academic turnaround, uh, physical therapy wasn't going to be a career for me. And there wasn't a whole lot else I was interested in doing with a kinesiology degree. I wasn't interested 
and pedagogy. I wasn't interested in coaching or, or uh, facilities management or marketing or, or those sorts of things. And so, um, but what I was really interested in was research. Uh, I had the opportunity to do some um, volunteer work in one of the exercise phys labs um, at the, the university and, and really enjoyed that uh, and just decided that I would go to grad school and, and figure things out. And so that's kind of how I ended up there. Um, there of course, there were a number of people and, and events that inspired my, my career um, as an academic once I got into graduate school, which um, I, I can talk about as well. Well, yeah, at least uh, give us a clue about uh, the turn that took you into really sociology and uh, uh, media research. Yeah, so the turn, um, so I went to graduate school um, in sports studies. My first degree um, was at Miami of Ohio, and um, there's a number of sports psychologists and sports sociologists there, and I thought I was going to go into sports psychology. Again, this is very all-roundabout. Um, and I took a class with Dr. Othello Harris on uh, sociology of sport. And I think that was uh, in that class that I was exposed to feminist theory. Uh, I hadn't taken a women's studies class before then. And I got really interested in uh, broader forms of inequality, uh, race, class, gender, sexuality, uh, the, the reading list was quite broad for that class. And so then I started delving more into that, taking classes with Dr. Mary McDonald, who was there at the time, uh, and uh, Dr. Alan Ingham, um, and, and really just sort of thrived in that and, and found a lot of, uh, um, I think it was when that, during that time that my uh, motivation for social justice and social inequality really kind of those seeds were sown and, and really kind of given life. I think I had always been concerned with social justice issues in very, very, very tempered ways um, throughout my, my, my life. But I think it was there that I really, um, those ideas kind of and, and, and uh, desires and motivations and, and uh, kind of activism came to the fore. And then I went to uh, the University of Southern California and did my PhD work with uh, Michael Messner, and of course, um, you know, the, I guess maybe the rest is history. But those are some folks I think that really inspired me in terms of my my uh, interest in sociology and in particular sociology of sport. Sounds like that was a really exciting time for you, uh, Tony. Tell us uh, tell us about yourself. Um, how did it happen with graduate school? And all the way to Illinois, by the way. Yes, it was all the way to Illinois. And um, Cheryl, I think our stories are starting to come together. Um, <laughs> I was a really bad high school student. I was only really stayed at high school so I could play sport. <laughs> so, um, and I knew I wanted to travel. So my first uh, qualification out of school was I did a one-year training course to be a secretary because I knew I could get work in the UK if I was trained that way. So I did that and then worked for six months, got totally bored, and applied to get into journalism, which I'd always wanted to do, but thought I wasn't bright enough to to be accepted. So I was accepted into a program and worked for three years as a news reporter for a newspaper in, in New Zealand. And then, um, then I saved up my money and travelled and... I had the experience of working on summer camps in the USA for Boys Clubs of America. 
And I worked with inner-city Chicago kids from Cabrini Green, which you'll probably know, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. And um, if everyone I worked with had had undergraduate degrees, and that was the first time it occurred to me that, um, you know, that maybe that might be something I could do. So I applied to physical education in New Zealand and was accepted as a special admission. So someone who didn't actually have the marks to get into university but, um, you know, had some life experience that looked like it might be interesting. So given that I thought I wasn't bright enough even to get into an undergraduate, I had never considered graduate school at all. But um, in my phys ed degree, I discovered that I really loved learning and I, I got really interested in systems. So there was a point at which I was not sure if I was going to go down the exercise physiology track or the sociology track. But I think because of my life experience, sociology really spoke to me. So by the time I'd finished, my professors were encouraging me to apply for a scholarship to study overseas, saying that they needed more women in the field. So I came to the U.S. on a Rotary International Scholarship to do my master's and never left academia. I'm, uh, I'm also the first in my family to, um, to get a Ph.D., so um, my family are very supportive. But um, when I first got my first academic job, my grandmother asked me what I would be coaching. So there wasn't necessarily <laughs> a lot of understanding about what an academic job actually was. Um, and obviously my, my background's in sport and in journalism, so when I got to grad school, I thought, how cool is this, that I can study the things that really matter to me, but um, do it in a much more in-depth and theoretically informed way than I could have done before I actually went through. Very, very interesting stories. Um, let's go to the kind of research that um, you're doing now. Um, I know that you, each of you ha- is beyond the very early career stage, um, post-doc uh, a bit. And so, uh, Tony, why don't you keep going right now and uh, paint the picture of what your research um, how did you shock your grandmother with what you were doing, actually doing with your research in the beginning and, and where it has evolved? I, th- I think I decided to protect my grandmother from uh, theoretical language. <laughs> the so horrible truth. But I think like Cheryl, I've always been interested in... Um, I'm always, I've always been particularly interested in how the media represents different groups and especially those like sportswomen who are marginalised. So like Cheryl, I've, I've done research on gender, on race and ethnicity. Um, in, in New Zealand, I'm very interested in nationalism and what contributes to that. And I've also done some research on media representation of disability. So, um, And the other thing I'm really interested in is because I was a journalist, I think, in how do we make research accessible to public audiences? So I do quite a bit of writing in creative formats inspired by Norm Denzen, who I studied with, and Laura Richardson. So I write um, academic work in creative ways. I've just had a novel uh, about women's sport media coverage accepted for publication. So I'm really trying to take some of these ideas that I'm working with and write them in ways that, that people who aren't trained as academics can find their way into. Um, so yeah, so I think 
Um, I've always had a few strings to my bow, but women's sport and representation is a very frustrating area to work in, as you'll probably agree, both of you. Um, and about five years ago, I was really losing hope because things weren't changing, and I was seriously thinking about um, giving up studying women's sport for my own uh, mental well-being. But then um, social media exploded and we started seeing new kinds of images and discussion happening and then I started reading new, some of the new feminist theories like um, third wave feminism that seemed to offer us a different way to think about media representation of women. So I've been quite rejuvenated in the last five years and um, I feel determined to try to kind of keep trying to understand, trying to contribute in some way to how do we change perceptions um, so that all these fabulous, skilled female athletes actually get the attention they deserve. So I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. um, Cheryl, how about you? Please, I may have to pop in uh, before you're finished, but take your time because we can always pick up a little bit more of the story um, after our last break. So um, when did you start your research and what, what sort of led you to the paths that you've taken? Yeah, um, I think... Well, I, let me just say, I, I love the story about Tony's grandmother because it reminds me of, of my father who um, sprained his ankle and, and, you know, was insistent upon me knowing how to wrap his ankle or what exercises he should be doing to, to fix his ankle. So um, I think that's kind of maybe ignorance about what it is that we do as sociologists is, is uh, something that we share in common. Um, in terms of the, the research, I think... Um, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I can pinpoint a moment that uh, led me to be interested in the kinds of questions that I'm interested in. I think a lot of it, though, um, is driven by my experiences. Uh, and so some of my earlier research um, as a graduate student um, and, and uh, junior scholar was on um, girls' experiences in sport, and both my thesis and my dissertation research uh, looked at the ways in which um, culture and structure interact with and shape um, girls' experiences and how they come to understand and negotiate the gendered um, meanings within sports spaces and how those are racialized and, and classed and so on. Um, what led me to be interested in media as a kind of academic inquiry. I mean, I had taken some courses, but um, it was a, a research assistantship that I um, received to help uh, Mike Messner with some of his longitudinal research that he was doing. Um, and I, I think uh, those that uh, know the field and, and know of Mike's work are going to be familiar with the story, but it's the, the longitudinal study that examines uh, televised news media coverage of sports. And so uh, that, I think, maybe if I were to pinpoint anything, was the kind of the moment where I, I started to become increasingly interested in the media as a way to understand uh, broader uh, cultural ideologies and beliefs uh, and, and to think about the media as an important site for the, the construction of identities. Uh, um, Cheryl, yeah, hang, hang on sure. for a second. Uh, sure. We're going to take our break and come right back with uh, the issues about identity. So it sounds like a great moment uh, in in your life and also the people whose uh, work you who, who who whom your work has touched. Okay, we're going to take a short break now and be back again on the long road up. 
Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. We're looking at uh, the work of two renowned people who have studied a lot about media and representations of women in sport. And um, Cheryl was just telling a little bit about a, a, a study that she did with another individual who's very famous in the field um, and how that impacted on uh, how her career evolved. So Cheryl, pick up your story, please. Yeah, so I was talking a little bit about the um, longitudinal study I've, I've conducted with uh, Dr. Mike Messner at the University of Southern California. I should say that that was an opportunity, as I mentioned before the break, uh, to, um, that I had in graduate school to do some research and to work with a professor. Um, and kind of a long story, probably you know longer than what we have time for here, but roundabout way, um, I ended up as the co-PI on that study about 10 years after my research assistantship. Uh, and so Mike and I are now collaborators um, and, and co-investigators on, on the study. The most recent uh, report um, and findings were issued in 2015. Uh, and what we found over the last 25 years is that um, with the sample that we've studied, the coverage of women's sports has actually declined um, in the 25-year time frame. And so... Uh, you know, Tony, I, I thought it was interesting because you were mentioning about how you're, you're a little bit more optimistic or you've grown more optimistic over the past five years with the explosion of social media and, and uh, third wave kind of feminist perspectives on uh, uh, media and representation. I, I, you know, I, there's a part of me that's optimistic, but I, I think I'm still, I don't know, I guess I would describe myself as a, um, a second wave feminist stuck in a third wave body. I just, I find it... Um, uh, that I'm less optimistic as time goes on, um, that things are changing. And I think, uh, while there's been, a, you know, some, some really important things that are happening on social media, um, some other projects that I'm involved in maybe make me a little bit less optimistic as to what kinds of changes, um, those kinds of trends might be having on, on mainstream media. And so, um, so, yeah, so I'm a little, little less, less optimistic in, in, in that regard. Tony, were you going to bring up uh, something that impacts on this, too? 
Yes, I was. Um, and I want to say, Cheryl, that, that because I'm a little bit older than you, I think I might actually be a third-wave feminist stuck in a second-wave feminist body. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, one thing, one thing Cheryl said, which was, you know, the way that her own personal experience impacted her research agenda, and I, and my, I just thought I'd mention that my master's thesis was an exploration of media representation of women's basketball and how women's basketball fans um, feel about it, which, of course, is directly related to the fact that I'd played basketball for most of my entire life. And then my PhD was um, interviewing women sports reporters in the U.S. about their experiences covering male sport around the sexism and those kinds of things, which, of course, came directly out of my experience as a sports reporter. So um, I think that that's where a lot of us start. We start with the things that matter to us, and then as we explore those things, other questions come up and, um, and get raised. And I think, Cheryl, I am a little bit more optimistic, and it might be because I, I read a lot of research in other countries other than the U.S. So some of my recent work is actually looking at the international body of literature, and there is, which I can talk about soon, there is a little bit in there that actually um, gives us some hope, I think. Well, that's well, good. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, gives us, uh, uh, points the direction for our next questions. Um, whether you're optimistic or a little bit less so or second wave or third wave, it's still a case that there's very, very little coverage. I mean, if we're looking at percentage-wise how much coverage there is of girls and women's sport, it's so small. And both of you have a wonderful um, viewpoint to say why you think that is true. What, what do you think accounts for so little coverage and, and so little even small amounts of change over time. And as, as Tony is saying, are there regions or countries in the world where the, it's a different picture? Um, any place where it's good or even acceptable coverage of women's sport? Um, Cheryl, how about uh, la- launching into that one? What's, what are our reasons? Why is it there's so little? Yeah, and I'll, I'll say, I, I, you know, I'm going to speak from the uh, American context because the, the media research that I've done has been squarely situated within the United States, although, I, of course, I'm familiar with some of the scholarship um, outside of the, the uh, U.S. context. Um, I think in terms of what accounts for little coverage in the United States, little coverage of, of women's sports in the United States, um, I, I think there's a number of factors at play. I think if we're looking at the overall numbers and we're looking at mainstream sports outlets um, and even mainstream news media outlets, uh, in newspapers like the New York Times or your, your um, ESPN Sports Center, ESPN.com, CBS Sports, those outlets, indeed there is very... Uh, little coverage of, of women's sports. And I think there are a number of factors at play. Um, one of which I would say in the last 20 years is the movement of, um, or I should say the growth in uh, niche markets um, and online platforms that are devoted to very specific types of coverage. So we don't see women's sports covered in mainstream outlets, but it certainly is in these um, uh, niche markets like ESPNW, on sports blogs, um, women talk sports, other um, online sites. And so I think uh, that coverage is now um, moved to those 
uh, niche markets and spaces. I think in the United States and probably elsewhere as well, but this um, perception that sports is still a man's world, I think, holds um, a, a lot of sway and, and still has a, a, a significant hold on the culture in terms of how we think about sports and, and what sports are considered to be exciting and interesting. Uh, I think there's also a misperception by those in the mainstream news media as to who's watching sports and what folks are interested in. And so in some ways, I think there's this really kind of echo chamber that exists within sports media in the United States so that we're, we're only talking to um, and about the people that we, i.e. the mainstream sports media, think we should be talking to and about, which is men. Uh, and there's a whole lot happening outside of that, that echo chamber and outside of that bubble that would suggest that people are interested in watching women's sports. I think the United States um, World Cup uh, win last year is a great example of that in the American context of people being interested in watching women's sports. I just think that the mainstream news media and sports media aren't interested in covering women's sports. And I think that's a key issue. Well, uh, a heads up, Cheryl, when we come back, when I come back to you and also Tony, I want to ask you the question about who's and what is going to change the picture. But first off, um, let, let me hear a little bit from Tony about uh, differences that you found when you were doing uh, cross-cultural uh, comparisons with media and women's sport coverage. Well, one of the things I did want to say is I agree with Cheryl that I think it's cultural attitudes and beliefs that, that see women, that see women's sport as a, a valuable participation activity. So it's good for women to play sport, but that, that don't see it as culturally valuable. So we're, we're raised to believe that what men do on the sports fields is worth paying public attention to, especially media attention, but what women do is usually not. Unless, of course, they're competing for the nation, like in the Olympics that are coming up, and bringing glory to the nation. And um, Gina Davis said something about Hollywood that really resonates with me, which is that the the problem with this is that we're teaching boys and girls that it's stories about sportsmen that matter, and we're teaching boys in particular that they don't need to pay attention to stories about girls. So I think this is something that's just kind of been rolling over and rolling over. And most sports journalists are older, white uh, men, especially in New Zealand, who played sport in a time often before women's sport became really big. So they're still kind of in their own mind focusing on the sports that were important when they were growing up. Which is, uh, I've completely lost track on what you want to... Oh, oh, international research. So, um, (laughs) So I think one of the things that that we found in one of the studies we did was that um, we looked at Olympic coverage across 18 different countries. And although there were quite a lot of similar patterns, there were some countries that um, gave women quite a lot of coverage during the Olympics only. Um, But the U.S. was one of the countries that really um, was, was slightly an outlier in that it tended to focus on very feminine athletes who won gold medals whereas other countries would focus on any of their athletes that won gold medals. And I think part of that is that U.S. women are too successful, or there are too many U.S. women who are successful. So 
then the media has to decide between, well, which of these many winning women will we focus on? And then they, they bring gender discourses into play and go, well, we'll focus on the ones that um, fit our ideals of femininity. So internationally, there are, um, there are some fairly consistent patterns of low coverage. I'm not going to say that there's any country that's really nailed it that has 50% coverage of, of men and women. But in New Zealand, for example, the, the amount's slowly creeping up. So two studies I've done in 2008 and 2011, women's sport um, gets over 10%. And it's really sad that I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd have to say that too. But, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> and I have been accused of being a Pollyanna, so I do always try to look at the most positive thing that I can, that I can do. So I think um, we've still got a very, very long road to travel, but it is actually outside of the mainstream media that, it, that as Cheryl pointed out, that's where we're seeing some of the, the differences. And so I'm not... I'm beginning to think that that's where we should actually be putting our energies and that's where we should be paying attention because I can't see anything significant at the moment that's happening in journalism that's likely to shift. Uh, well, you, the, all the material that you're mentioning brings up uh, so many um, important points and, and important questions. Um, I, for example, uh, have been very involved with policy work um, in, in sport and uh, globally. And I know that, as you know, that all of these organizations, the Olympic committees, the national governing bodies, the international federations, they've all signed on to these documents saying that we're going to treat women athletes with exact uh, equity uh, compared to their male counterparts, but yet it's not happening. So, um, as I said, Cheryl, let me come back to you again. What, what do you think are the obstacles to ad really advancing, getting these organizations to live by the promises they've made? And is there anything foreseeable that could ch can change the picture? What, what do you think could change things? That's a great question. I think... You know, if we could really nail that down, I think I think the change would be happening. Um, but in, in terms of obstacles it, it, to advances in uh, gender equity or equality in sport, I think one of the major obstacles is this this issue that um, both Tony and I have touched upon, which is the the kind of um, the way in which sport is so intricately linked to masculinity in ways that are an oftentimes um, resistant to change. And so I think, uh, you know, Tony hit it, the nail on the head when she said that I think most countries uh, and most cultures recognize the value in girls' and women's participation in sport and are actively working to support it through those policies, Carol, that you mentioned. It's changing the cultural values. It's changing the perceptions. It's changing the meanings of sport that I think is the biggest obstacle. How do you shift what sport means to folks who maybe grew up in a time where the sport was just for the boys, um, where, you know, girls who played sports were uh, you know, mannish or lesbian or, you know, all the, all the kinds of stereotypes that, that were thrown at, at uh, female athletes throughout the kind of re modern history of, of sport in Western cultures. And so 
how do you change that? How do you shift that 100 plus years of, you know, a, a particular type of cultural practice being so intricately tied with masculinity? That I think is, is the biggest obstacle, obstacle. And I think it's going to take time, unfortunately, in terms of what's going to change the picture. We see with every generation increasing acceptance. Um, younger generations may be growing up with different kinds of messages, although I think there's some indicators, as Tony mentioned, research that's showing that, that popular culture today is still sending messages to kids that, that it's boys, boys' stories matter and girls' stories are really only interesting for girls and thus not really, you know, mainstream um, or, or culturally valued. So I think um, there might be some hope. I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more of a pessimist. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm less likely to see that change happening. Uh, I think it's gradual. Uh, one of the things that um, we talk about in some of our research is the, the unevenness of social change. So I think we can look to spaces within um, the sporting world where we have seen, you know, tremendous change over the last 30, 40 years. In the United States, the, the growth in participation is, is one of those. Um, but there's still these other spaces where, you know, if you didn't if you didn't know any better, you'd think it was you know, nineteen eighty six or nineteen sixty six instead of twenty fifteen. <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you for being on the program. It was really terrific to hear from you. Um, I hope our listeners will join next week. Uh, Women in sport: the long road up. We're going to be focusing on philanthropy and the business of sport, maybe how to get some money flowing into women's sport, uh, and, and with the idea that maybe this will change some of the patterns that our guests have been talking about. Thank you both, and uh, see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.